0: It may be a familiar scene to many of you. The list had been posted on a wall in our high school. And a lot of the teenage boys excitedly gathered around with anticipation of what would be on this piece of paper. And I went up to the paper and I scanned it row by row looking for my name. And then I scanned it again. And that's when my heart dropped because I knew I had not made the high school baseball team. I was filled with disappointment and my hopes were dashed. And even though this is a relatively minor disappointment in our lives, it serves as sort of a microcosm for our lives. Each day, each year, we are faced with disappointments of all sorts. Some minor, some very serious. Our hopes, what we had hoped for, what we had anticipated, what we had yearned for, what we thought would give us joy, vanished and we were left in disappointment and despair. What are you hoping for? What are you hoping in? For some of you, the hope of Retirement fills you with joy when you can finally relax and be at ease. For some of you, the hope of graduating and getting a good job and being successful in life. For some of you, it's a hope of having popularity and the approval of your friends. For some of you parents, it's the hope of Raising successful kids who love the Lord. But I want to argue this morning that if we place our ultimate hope in any of these temporary and earthly things, even if they're good things, if we place them as our ultimate hope, we will be sorely disappointed. We will despair. We can only perhaps imagine what Jesus' disciples, both the men and women, felt as they were filled with disappointment. They had been yearning perhaps for a Messiah who would usher in a kingdom here and now. They were hopeful in a Messiah who would not suffer, definitely one who would not die. And yet as they saw him hanging on the cross, as they saw his limp body carried away as they knew on that Saturday that he was in the tomb, they were filled with despair and disappointment. Because they were pinning their ultimate hopes on something other than the person and work of Jesus in his suffering, death, and resurrection. I want to encourage you this morning to put your hope Not in yourself, not in any temporal or earthly thing, as good as those things may be, but to find your ultimate hope in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. Because that's the only way you will not be disappointed. It's the only way you will not fall into despair in this challenging and difficult life. We've been walking through our confession of faith, From the Apostles' Creed, where we confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, that he died, that he was buried, and now we come to the portion of the confession where we excitedly proclaim on the third day he rose again from the dead. We've been considering why we confess these things and what we mean when we confess these things. What we confess with this part of our confession is that Jesus literally rose from the dead. That in his death, his heart stopped beating, his lungs stopped functioning, his brain, uh, brain ceased to be working. And in the re- resurrection, all of this changed. He came back to life. And it just struck me as Crystal was reading Why do I take this so nonchalantly sometimes? That Jesus, a man who is also God, literally rose from the dead. Are you kidding me? And yet I go about my daily life as though maybe it didn't really matter that much. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, what, what does that demand from our lives? What ought that to move us to? In our lives. As we confess this, we do confess those facts that he literally rose from the dead. But just like we considered last week, I'd like us to consider the theological significance of his resurrection from the dead. And to do this, I'll be preaching in a style that I don't normally preach, which is a topical sermon. So we'll be flipping to a lot of different passages in Scripture, so you need to get your flippers and scrollers ready to be, to be moving along with the pages. I have mine marked, so I have it a little bit easier. <laughs> and for the, the outline of this sermon, I'm using an outline given by a 16th century German reformer named Caspar Olivianus, who wrote a commentary on the Apostles' Creed. And he points out these four fruits from the resurrection. In other words, what implications are there for us from an event that took place some 2,000 years ago? What benefit comes to us? What fruit is there from the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And the first fruit that I'd like to point to is our justification. It's because of Jesus' resurrection that we have been Justified. Now, we often make much of Jesus' cross and His crucifixion for our justification. Rightly so. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, For I aim to know nothing among you except for what? Christ. Christ crucified. He nails it home to the Corinthians over and over again. Christ crucified. This is what your faith is about. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who suffered and died for your sake. And it is through His death that we have been made right with God as a substitute for our sins. Our sins were placed upon Him, and His righteousness was placed upon us. Justification, you've heard, I'm sure, many times. It's a legal term in Scripture which refers to a declaration by God that one is right before Him that one is righteous before Him. So justification would be that you would be seen and declared by God as though you had perfectly obeyed all righteousness from the moment of your birth to the moment of your death, that you had always done the right thing and done the right thing with the right motive of faith for the glory of God. In Jesus Christ, He declares those who come to Him as justified before Him, as righteous before Him. And yet we also must acknowledge that without the resurrection, we would still be in our sins. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17? He's he's arguing to the Corinthians, the same book in which he said, I wanted to proclaim nothing but Christ crucified. He's proclaiming to them the truth of the resurrection. He says, if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, you are still in your sins. Well, We should consider the reverse of that as well. If Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, then all of you who have come to faith in Him are no longer in your sins. That means you no longer bear the weight of them because Jesus Christ bore the weight of them for you. We'll consider also Romans chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. Turn there in your Bibles. Romans chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. Here he's speaking about the promise of God, which has been received by faith. That it's through faith that we receive the promise. Indeed, that it's through faith that we become offspring of Abraham. That we become children of Abraham and that we become a part of the people of God. Verse 22 of chapter 4 says, That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That counted to him as righteousness. Again, speaks to imputation. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, Who's raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Well, in what sense has Jesus been raised for our justification? In what sense are we justified by his resurrection? And I, I would argue that his resurrection, in a sense, finalizes our justification. Because in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he is vindicated. All the claims that he made about himself have been vindicated. All that he had said about his own identity as one sent from the Father to the world to rescue the world, his words have been completely vindicated. And he is found to be not only true, but the Lord Jesus Christ, the master over heaven and earth. And also, in his resurrection, Jesus is vindicated concerning his sacrifice. His resurrection shows that the Father received his sacrifice as one that was pure and acceptable for him, for the payment of the sins of his people. Jesus Christ was raised for our justification. And brothers and sisters, those of you who cling to Him in faith, you know what faith is. It is not a believing actual facts. It's not just believing that Jesus literally rose from the dead. Rather, it is an embrace of Jesus Christ and all His claims. It is a resting in Christ, a trust in Him. For all of you who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer in your sins. God has declared you as righteous in His sight. And that should lead us to worship Him. That should lead us to worship and praise Him for His goodness to us. A second fruit from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this word will trip you up if you're not careful, is our vivification. Hmm. Our vivification or our being brought or being given new life. It's an old Reformation word. Vivified. We've been been raised to life. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. so that no one may boast. Did you catch that in verse 5? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. He's speaking of Christ's being made alive. And in some mysterious sense, we who have come to Him in faith are united to Christ in His death and resurrection. We were there 2,000 years ago. We were being made alive in Christ. Connected to him by faith. It speaks of our regeneration. It speaks of us who once were completely dead and now he awakens within us life. You see at the end of this passage he says, For it's by grace you've been saved Through faith, and even this faith is a gift from God so that you will not boast. He he created this in us when He brought us to life in connection with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Hmm. Kind of a side point, even mysteriously, we have been raised up with Christ in the ascension and are seated with Him in the heavenly places. It's as good as done. That we are with him in his kingdom, even as he reigns from heaven now. Consider also Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. And we could begin reading at verse 1 of Romans 6. He's proclaiming that Christ is the the new man who has reversed the curse of Adam. He was the, the, the second Adam, the one who lived in complete obedience to God, and it is through Him that has come righteousness and justification for those who come to Him in faith. So it's not by anything that we do, it's by this one, Jesus. Through Him we are saved. So Paul says in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If grace, if grace covers all of our sins, well, why, why don't we just keep on sinning so that more grace will come to us? By no means, he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here Paul is pointing to baptism in particular as a sign of what took place in our conversion, as a sign of what happened. We died to our old selves And we were raised in the newness of life with Jesus Christ in His resurrection. We are made alive by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We had some beautiful signs of spring near our house just a few weeks ago when my son and my daughter, we peeked around in a bush. We had actually seen a little robin fluttering around with twigs in his beak. And we thought, I bet he's making a nest. And sure enough, we saw the nest. And then a few days later, we saw a beautiful blue egg in the nest. And then the next day, there was another egg. And the next day, there was a third egg. And then just yesterday or the day before, we peeked in, and there were baby birds in there, little pink baby chicks. And now these chicks are going to have a new life rather than the one they just had as they were encapsulated in the little egg. Now they're going to begin chirping. They're going to begin begin fluttering their wings. They'll hop out of that nest one day soon. they'll, They'll be acting like birds, in other words. They have this new life as birds and not just fertilized eggs in which they will be acting out everything that it means to be a bird, a robin in this case. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, you who are in Christ Jesus, who have come to faith in Him by His grace, which created that faith in you, you have a new life in Christ. What does the Scripture say? The old has passed away and the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. That means you start doing things that are new. You start acting and living in a new way. You start thinking in a new way. You are new. You're not the same as you were before you had faith in Jesus Christ. You've been regenerated from the inside out. You've been transformed. And so that's why in Colossians 3, Paul makes an application concerning what it means that we are new. Look at that passage, Colossians chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 and following. If then you have been raised with Christ. How many of you have been raised with Christ? If you are in faith in Jesus Christ, you have been raised with Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He's speaking of the new creation that you are in Christ, of how you are new. He continues on through verse 17. I won't read all of it, but look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, You once walked in these things, but no longer. And then in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has complaint against one another, forgiving one another. These are the sorts of things that we as new creations begin to do. These are are the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We ought to examine our lives. We ought to help one another examine the fruit in our own lives. Because we want to be growing. We want to be patterning our lives after Christ, who is our life. He raises us to life, and this is by the Holy Spirit Changing our hearts and making us into a new creation. He does this all by His grace and he does, he does also this next fruit by His grace, which is our perseverance. This third fruit from the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the surety, the assurance that we will persevere in faith throughout this life. Look at First Peter one, three through six. First Peter 1, three through six. There Peter says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, So what happened here? Verse 3, He has caused us to be born again. There's our regeneration, our being born again, our being brought to life to a living hope, that is faith, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. These are all fruits. What have we been born again to a living hope? To, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It is being kept in heaven for you. And, verse 5, you, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Those who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ the Son of God are being kept by the power of God. The same power that raised the dead man to life is keeping you in your faith those of you who have been born again. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that encouraging that my keeping myself in the faith is not what's ultimate but God is his power keeping you in, causing you to persevere, causing you to faithfully trust in Him throughout challenges and difficulties. It's reported that at the end of the Constitutional Convention in 1787, someone asked Benjamin Franklin, What do we have, a, mon- a, a monarchy? Or a republic? And he responded in a well known phrase, and there have been a couple books written recently to this effect. Franklin said, A republic, if you can keep it. I think the point of his statement is that a republic can be hard to keep, (laughs) it can be fragile at times, it can be broken down by immorality or by threats of different governmental philosophies coming into play. I think even now we could say we we can see some fracturing sometimes of this republic. He's he's speaking to the necessity of those who are in the republic to keep at it. It's it's up to us to keep the republic, a republic if you can keep it. Well, I'm thankful that this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3 Chapter one and three and following doesn't say an inheritance if you can keep it. Perseverance if you can do it. As if we were children frantically running around our sand castles at the beach trying to protect them from what would tear them down. Brothers and sisters, you are being guarded. By the power of God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And rather than making that cause you to, to run away from God or think that it doesn't matter, it causes you all the more to yearn for Him. To yearn to trust Him. To yearn to live faithfully for Him. He is guarding your faith and that should give you great encouragement to keep striving in the midst of this challenging Difficult life. The fruits of Jesus' resurrection that we've covered are our justification, our vivification, our perseverance in the faith, and finally, our immortality. Our immortality. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. Start in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And also consider 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do any of you want new glorified bodies? There are certain days I want that very desperately. <laughs> our, even our culture desires a sort of immortality. Even those around us desire to live longer. It would Say 150 years. Maybe we can make advances in medicine to the extent we could live to 200 years. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> Actually, there is a, an organization called the Immortality Institute. And they're working to take certain supplements that have shown to prolong life in mice. Hopefully, they're hoping it will prolong their existence as well. But even those who don't want to live for a really, really long time desire, at least in some sense, to be immortal in another way, perhaps through books that they've written or through some achievements that they have attained, something that they've done so that their name will live on through the ages. One poet, Edgar Lee Masters, says, This, immortality is not a gift. Immortality is an achievement. And only those who strive mightily shall possess it. He's wrong that immortality is not a gift. He's actually right that it is an achievement. But it's nothing that you would ever be able to achieve on your own, by your own strength, by your own intellect, by your own hard work and striving, you could never achieve immortality. It is a gift of God which has been achieved by Jesus Christ in His perfect life, in His sacrificial death, and in His resurrection from the dead. But even immortality isn't in and of itself what we're longing for. If you live forever without God, it will be hell. What we long for is eternal life and immortality with God having favor upon us because of Jesus Christ. This is what we long for, to be with Him forever and to be accepted by Him and loved by Him and to love Him and give Him glory for all eternity. This is what we are longing for and it is yours in Jesus Christ. Did you notice In verses 54 and 55, what this says, it says, we often read this and think that this is the case now, and there is a sense in which it is, but he says in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when that happens, in other words, when this body, this physical body is changed to a glorified body, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, O death, death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Jesus has risen from the dead and received His glorified body and He is the firstfruits. And we are waiting for the fulfillment of this promise. We are still eagerly anticipating the fulfillment when not only are our souls renewed, but our whole being is renewed and glorified and when we will be changed or when we will be dead and we will be resurrected from the dead. And then at that moment, our salvation will be finalized. Death will be swallowed up in victory. It will have no sting. It will have no victory. And we will be with the Lord forever. What is your hope, brothers and sisters? In what or in whom are you hoping? Hope in the Lord who has suffered for you, who died for you, who was buried and who rose again, that you could have life forever with him. Let's pray together.